0: From Kyiv to Congress, a stark reminder of what is at stake in Ukraine.
1: Today, the Ukrainian people are defending not only Ukraine, we are fighting for the values of Europe and the world.
0: Ukraine's president begging U.S. lawmakers like they've never been lobbied before. And the results near instant. And while the president delivers on most of Ukraine's demands, this momentous jab at Putin.
1: Oh, I, I, I think a war
0: Proving the president's point, a Russian attack on a Ukrainian theater where hundreds of civilians were huddled for safety. And a massacre in a bread line. Hungry civilians murdered near their capital. Also tonight, pumping it up, why gas prices continue to break the bank when oil prices have actually gone down. Is big oil making money off the backs of hardworking Americans? We'll tell you why prices at the pump aren't moving in the same direction as oil. Plus, was it a big mistake when President Biden scrapped the Keystone XL pipeline from Canada, did we miss an opportunity to keep gas prices low? Could that pipeline come back from the dead? And tragedy in Texas. College golf players who travel to a tournament are among nine dead in a fiery crash. What the survivors saw when a truck veered right into their lane. All ahead tonight on Banfield. <music> Hello and welcome to Banfield. When is the last time that members of the United States Congress all stood up together and clapped for the same thing? If one thing was certain, ahead of the Ukrainian president's do-or-die address to these U.S. lawmakers, this was it. A standing ovation befitting a leader who has redefined what it means to be a freedom fighter. Vladimir Zelensky came to Congress with big asks. The biggest being a no-fly zone enforced by NATO, which the Biden administration has made clear it simply cannot give. But Zelensky came prepared anyway. If this
2: is too much to ask, we offer an alternative. You know what kind of defense systems we need S 300 and other similar systems. You know how much depends on the battlefield, on the ability to use
0: aircraft. The S 300 that President Zelensky mentioned is this Feast your eyes. This is a highly advanced, long-range, anti-aircraft missile that most NATO countries actually don't even have yet. It is believed to be part of an $800 million package of weaponry that President Biden announced shortly after Zelensky wrapped up his address.
1: Now, I want to be honest with you. This could be a long and difficult battle, but the American people will be steadfast in our support of the people of Ukraine in the face of Putin's immoral, unethical attacks on civilian populations. We are united in our abhorrence of Putin's depraved onslaught. And we're going to continue to have their backs as they fight for their freedom, their democracy, their very survival.
0: That is not hyperbole. And it may not even be Mr. Biden's most consequential remark on Ukraine today. That honor may go to the unscripted, seemingly off-the-cuff answer to a reporter's question at a separate White House event.
1: Did you ask me whether I would call Oh, I, I, I think
0: he is a war criminal. I think he is a war criminal. Now, when you and I say it, that's just opinion. But when the president of the United States of America says it, it is a legal term with serious ramifications. And there is no lack of evidence of war crimes being perpetrated in Ukraine. Since the Russians have been unable to capture Ukraine's biggest cities, they're just smashing them to hell instead. Civilians be damned. None more than the city of Mariupol. We will never forget the attack last week on a maternity and children's hospital there, but today, well, equal or worse, the bombing of a theater a theater that was housing hundreds of civilians who had nowhere else to go and were cowering there for safety. Of course, such a place should have been off limits to bombs and missiles anyway. But the people, the people who were in there added an extra step, an extra step of writing the word children in Russian on both sides of the building. They wrote it on the ground. It was highly visible from the air and that did not matter now hundreds of them are feared dead and or trapped in what was a beautiful theater and then this and i warn you nearer to the capital city of kiev today russian troops are said to have killed 10 innocent civilians who were hungry and waiting in a bread line let me repeat that these people these corpses were merely waiting for bread in a line Russia looks at these pictures and announces it's all a hoax. But you are looking at the pictures for yourself. I'm going to stop here and I'm going to bring in my News Nation colleague, Robert Sherman, who's in Poland tonight, just across the border uh, with Ukraine. You know, Robert, with stories like this that just keep coming, it's no wonder that there has been a flood of three million refugees. Is it slowing? Is it growing? What's the story from your vantage point?
3: Well, to your point, Ashley, those images uh, are not far and few between. We see we when we were over in Ukraine, we saw those images all over the place, and we saw those images on the faces of Ukrainians. And as they continue to come across the border, you continue to see that again. So, to answer your question shortly, uh, the surge of migrants of uh, of refugees coming across the border has slowed down. It's not quite what it was a couple of weeks ago when you saw miles of cars, twelve to fifteen. Miles Miles deep. It's not quite that, uh, but the surge has not gone anywhere, and the demand for people to get across the border has not gone anywhere. Over 3 million Ukrainians have fled their homeland. 1.8 million have come right here to Poland. And many of the people who we speak with, they don't know where their final destination is. They don't know where they're going to be getting shelter, where their meals are going to come from. All they have are their clothes on their back. They have one suitcase with them. They're thankful to be safe here in another country, but they're trying to figure out the next step uh, every waking moment.
0: So they crossed into Poland because that was the safe haven. And then 13 miles from the Polish border, uh, the Russians laid waste to a, a base Um and that is awfully uh, close, too close for, for comfort for a lot of people politically, and I would assume for the refugees, too. Uh, the question I have is less now about the refugees and more about the Poles themselves. Are they bracing for a potential encroachment uh, closer to the border or even in Poland,
3: well, so far, we haven't seen an overwhelming sentiment of that. Some are nervous uh, that we've spoken with. Uh, some do fear uh, that it's not going to stop with Ukraine and that some of these other uh, countries in Eastern Europe would potentially be next on the list. Uh, but we don't see an overwhelming fear uh, of anything like that. To your point, though, I mean, we have seen a lot of these attacks move farther and farther to the West. That is making people nervous because uh, you had you know, a, a lot of these areas such as Kyiv and Kharkiv were right in the uh, center of where all of this action has been taking place. Now all of a sudden Ivano-Frankivsk, Lviv, uh, Lutsk, some of these other cities are, are finding themselves in the crosshairs as well. People don't know what to expect. They don't know what the next move is going to be made uh, in this conflict. Uh, and that's what worries a lot of people the most.
0: Just looking at this picture beside you, if that were a picture on the news, you know, in America, that would be the lead story for months upon months, a massive explosion right in the middle, you know, of a civilized area, high rises, civilians, innocents, um, all dying in that explosion. And that's just Wednesday, um, perhaps highlighted by what Zelensky said to Congress today. We have a 9-11 in a Pearl Harbor every day here, and you can see it you know, in these pictures. So to, to that end, Robert, I want to ask you about the, the peace talks. It's hard to even believe that that is coming out of my mouth, that they're actually happening. But it seems that there may have actually been some movement. And I'm just going to look through the list of what I saw today. Uh, Zelensky said that negotiations are actually becoming more realistic. That Those were his words. Lavrov, the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov in, in Russia, said that proposals are now being discussed where they might be close to an agreement. The Kremlin, uh, for its part, also saying that per- per- perhaps Ukraine might actually take on an identity close to Austria or Sweden, both members of the European Union, but they're outside of NATO. And then, of course, Big headline yesterday. Zelensky said, OK, the door is closed on NATO. I get it. We'll go it alone. And some people thought that was a concession. Where do we stand? Is this actually looking positive? Well
3: those are the sentiments that we've been gathering and of course let's all remember here that the Kremlin wants to put out certain information in order to bolster their case and uh, so that their people feel more confident and the same can be said for Ukrainians and the government that is in Kiev. What I would tell you is this is that we speak with we've spoken with a lot of Ukrainians on the issue of peace talks and the one thing that we keep hearing over and over again is that the average Ukrainian does not want to overly concede. They do not want to simply roll over because they they view the sacrifices that have been made by their countrymen and women are too great and too valuable to this point. And over the country's 30 or so years of history, a lot of blood has been spilled for the independence of ukraine so they don't want to give up that independence and autonomy uh many we've spoken with are not keen on the idea of relinquishing control of some of those eastern contested areas um the, the issues of the eu and nato complex of course uh most people that we speak with would like to join both of those groups uh one area that we do see people talk about though is crimea uh, a region in which uh russian control is really strong at this point. Um, we've heard people o- almost seem as though that they'd be willing to concede Crimea for the sake of peace. But the main issue that they say is, is that they don't want to give up too much. Uh, and they want to make that very clear to Russia that they don't want to roll over. So that's the issue that we're seeing here. And those are some of the red lines we're seeing drawn.
0: Robert Sherman, thank you for your reporting uh, from Poland live with us tonight. We really appreciate that. I want to uh, skip over to Washington, D.C. now, where News Nation's Kelly Meyer is standing by. She was uh, today watching, I think, what amounts to a master class in lobbying, Kelly. Um, we knew that Zelensky's address was going to be a, a big event, right? But even seasoned lawmakers looked like they were, uh, they were just moved almost to tears.
4: That's right. And like you said, just off the top of your show, a standing ovation, both Democrats and Republicans. That's something rare that they're in agreement on standing together and applauding President Zelensky. I'm told not a dry eye in the House. One lawmaker calling Zelensky the Churchill of our times and many lawmakers feeling the weight of this moment, saying when this chapter is written in history, how will we be remembered? How did we help Ukraine?
5: A passionate plea by Ukrainian President Volodymyr
2: Zelensky. In the darkest time for our country, for the whole Europe, I call on you to do more.
5: In hiding in his war-torn country, speaking directly to Congress and President Biden. Right now, the destiny of our country is being decided with russian forces bearing down across his country thousands dead more than three million fleeing Zelensky pulling from tragedies in american history to draw the connection and get his message across
2: remember pearl harbor terrible morning of december 7 1941 when your sky was black from the planes attacking you just remember it
5: during his 20-minute address the Ukrainian president showing this graphic video the real impact of Russia's invasion at the end the five words zelensky has been fighting for close the sky over ukraine
2: russia has turned the ukrainian sky into a source of death for thousands of people
5: Zelensky renewed his call for a no-fly zone over the country to protect from the onslaught of airstrikes from Russian forces. Is this a lot to ask for? A no-fly zone is a no-go for the Biden administration, fearing this will put Americans and Russians in direct conflict, escalating this into a world war. Zelensky offering other options, like requesting more anti-tank and air defense systems, calling on all U.S. companies to leave Russia, and pushing for harsher sanctions against Moscow.
2: Every week until the Russian military machine stops.
5: After speaking his native Ukrainian for much of the speech, Zelensky switched to English as he appealed directly to President Biden.
1: Today it's not enough to be the leader of the nation. Today it takes to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace.
4: A powerful plea from President Zelensky, but whether his plea is answered remains to be seen. Ashley,
0: I, that's what I keep wondering. I mean, the more we see these images, Kelly, it's devastating and that's got to break through the skin of a lot of, you know, hardened congressmen as well. Is there a rift on those who are saying, you know, maybe it is time for for what Zelensky's asking and that, and that's a no-fly zone?
4: There's a mix here. There are some lawmakers that are calling for a no-fly zone, uh, that is something that President President Zelensky said uh, had a renewed call for here today and he is getting some support here from lawmakers, but as far as um, there is more support for uh, sending fighter jets into Ukraine, many lawmakers are calling for that in addition to sending more weapons. But overall, the plea was heard here from both Democrats and Republicans uh, saying that the U.S. needs to do more here. Take a listen.
1: Most critically, we should be providing fighter jets. President Zelensky has said fighter jets are his top priority. It's what he needs most. Poland has offered up the MiGs that the Ukrainian pilots know how to fly, and Joe Biden personally vetoed those MiGs going to Ukraine. President Biden should allow those MiGs to go to Ukraine today, not flown by American pilots. We should not put American servicemen and women in harm's way, but flown by Ukrainian pilots so that you, the Ukrainian people can defend their homeland from Putin's aggression.
6: I think we should be doing everything we can to be sure that the Ukrainians have everything they need to fight. Um, and whatever that is and whatever they need, we should provide. I think uh, most people would agree that a no-fly zone is a declaration of war. It requires the United States or our NATO allies to enforce it.
1: That would, in fact, be a declaration of war.
4: So there you hear some lawmakers, not for the no-fly zone, but as you heard, Senator Ted Cruz, they're calling for the fighter jets to be sent in. The Pentagon says that this wouldn't make much of a difference, saying that Ukrainian air forces have a significant amount of air support already running daily. And, of course, the White House worried this will only escalate the situation.
0: Kelly Meyer uh, doing the job from us from Capitol Hill. Thank you for that. Do appreciate it. You know, if you had to pick a world leader, to go up against a former KGB spymaster who is now in charge of the world's biggest nuclear arsenal, you probably would not have picked Vladimir Zelensky. Not before, anyway. But now, absolutely. A lot has changed for this former comedian in just three weeks of war. He has virtually become the darling of the world. Respected, almost revered. News Nation correspondent Kelly Beeson joins me now live, and she's been following this. You know, um, Zelensky has charm, but perhaps even more, he has the kind of grit that few people would ever witness in their lives. And it seems to have really hit its mark. It certainly has, Ashley. It appears his drive stems from his love of country, even
7: in the face of danger. And Zelensky's willingness to speak directly to the citizens of Ukraine and other nations, expressing to them what's at stake during the Russian invasion has certainly captivated the world. Since the Russian invasion, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky reportedly dodging more than a dozen assassination attempts, rallying forces to defend Ukraine, and refusing to leave the war-torn country, moves that have sent his approval rating soaring.
1: The our our country, he right? is playing an information operations campaign uh, and, and trying to not only influence his own citizens who have done remarkable up to this point in his military, but also to influence uh, Putin in terms of pushing back to him, you know, from the strategic communication level that he's playing with here. It's it's quite remarkable. yeah.
7: yeah. It was an unconventional rise in politics for the Ukrainian leader. Before winning office, Zelensky was a prolific entertainer in both Ukraine and Russia, playing a fictional president portraying himself as principled and anti-establishment in his TV show, Servant of the People. During his presidential campaign in real life, Zelensky embodied a populist approach with an anti-war message, winning a landslide victory in 2019 with a stunning 70 percent of the
1: vote. For weeks of the
7: invasion, Zelensky's harnessed the power of mainstream and social media, frequently releasing videos, urging Ukrainians to take up arms and stand strong in the fight.
1: His emotion That's the key. Zelensky's really uh, diving into people's hearts, and that's certainly the way that new media works. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader Office.
7: Zelensky is also taking his message directly to world leaders. In a virtual address to U.S. Congress and President Joe Biden today, Zelensky making a brief but emotional plea for help, moving some in the audience to tears.
6: The balance is essential. The balance between ethos and pathos is everything.
7: Zelensky walking that line by explaining why he's requesting items like a no-fly zone over the country, while also appealing to the human side of the fight with a brief video showing the devastation in Ukraine.
6: It's really powerful to see before and after imagery and that's something we do in film and television right is juxtaposing two images his experience allows him to reach people and move them and inspire them
1: uh, to action
7: and Zelensky also skillfully tailoring his speeches to his audience invoking winston churchill while addressing british parliament and calling to mind the attack on Pearl Harbor while addressing U.S. Congress.
0: Today, these are tactics that could potentially move the needle in the days and weeks ahead, Ashley. And invoking the CN Tower in Toronto as well. I mean, he knows what he's doing. He knows his audience. And boy, has he been effective. Uh, Kelly Beeson, great work. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. I want to turn our attention uh, stateside because there is finally some relief from those soaring gas prices that reached as high as $8 a gallon. Or so we thought. Oil prices are coming down. Uh, so why aren't the gas prices doing the same thing? It's even got the president hot under the collar. Why you're still shelling out for gas and why oil and gas executives are licking their chops. Next.
1: Persistent condition.
6: It feels good to be here for
1: them. Living longer is possible. It's true. Keytruda from Merck. Ask your doctor about Keytruda.
0: What goes up must come down, right? Not when it comes to oil companies and what you pay at the pump. Everybody felt the immediate pinch when the war in Ukraine and the resulting Russian sanctions made the price of oil shoot through the roof. We get a fair bit of our oil from Russia. But those spiking prices per barrel have since come down. And quite a bit, it turns out. So you would, of course, think that the prices at the pump would reflect that. They don't. They're higher. So, what gives? News Nation correspondent Brian Enton is on the story and he joins us to explain what seems, Brian, like a very unfair system to us drivers. Why is this happening?
6: Yeah, it certainly does. You know, Ashley, the gas prices have come down, but barely. We're talking since just a very, very little bit. Which is so confusing, you mentioned it, when you look at the price of oil, which has come down much, much more. One thing uh, that seems to be getting worse, which we talked about last night, uh, is gas thefts continue to be on the rise. It is still happening. Gas thieves targeting gas stations. The latest in North Carolina, where this guy showed up late at night and used a device to get into the pump and steal hundreds of gallons of gas. Police say he then waved other cars into the gas station so they could also fill up for free. It lasted about 45 minutes till about 11 16, that when the police found out they were here. And by between that time, it was like maybe 15 cars or more probably filled the gas about. Close to 400 gallons. It's the latest in a spike of gas thefts, as the national average price of gas sits at $4.31 a gallon. It's even higher in some parts of the country.
2: $60 if you want to fill up your tank.
6: $60 for your tank? Yes. How difficult is that?
1: It's difficult.
6: What's so perplexing is the price of oil is dropping, but the price of gas is not. President Biden tweeting, oil prices are decreasing, gas prices should too. Last time oil was $96 a barrel, gas was $3.62 a gallon. Now it's $4.31. Oil and gas companies should not pad their profits at the expense of hardworking Americans. He tweeted this chart that shows oil prices dropping for the last week, but gas prices staying about the same. Oil prices going down, but gas prices not. It just doesn't seem to make sense.
1: It always seems like the prices at the pump move higher a lot faster than moving lower.
6: Doug Shoup with AAA says gas stations already bought the gas they have now at a higher price, so it'll take some time before we
1: finally see relief. They paid higher prices when the crude oil prices were higher. And then the other thing that comes into play is competition. When one gas station is slow to move the prices down, all the other gas stations around it, that makes them very hesitant and reluctant to move the prices lower as well. So the prices have gone
6: down, again, just a little bit in some areas. It's barely even noticeable. Uh, it'll be interesting, Ashley, to see what happens uh, over the coming weeks, really days. Hopefully, uh, we'll start to see a little bit of relief at the pump.
0: I was looking at some numbers, Brian, and it just sort of made me uh, so angry. Since March 8th, oil is down 23%. But since March 8th, gas is up. Three percent. So uh, there's probably a reason they call it rockets and feathers. It rockets up at the, the hint that there's a problem and then it falls at the rate of a feather. Um, so what, do we have a sort of a timeline? I know a lot of people are kind of thinking, well, maybe I can hold off and not fill my car for a couple of days or a week. But should we be that optimistic?
6: Well, all the experts I talked to today—that was my question. Can you give me a day? Can you say whether it's going to be a couple of weeks? Uh, and and they really don't have a timeline. It comes down in many ways to competition. Uh, if one of these companies decides to lower the prices, it's gonna make it very, very competitive because everyone's gonna start going to mobile or to Shell or to Exxon to get their gas. And then everyone at the same time uh, is gonna feel like they need to lower their prices. We reached out today to Chevron uh, and also to Exxon um, asking, look, is there a timeline? Is there a day you're gonna do this? They would not respond to our specific questions.
0: Oh, surprise, surprise, Brian. They yeah. didn't want to have to face the hard question. This is you. This is not Putin. You're doing this to us. And when are you going to stop? Crickets. All right, Brian, keep on it. You're doing a great job this week of being honest to us about why we're paying so much. Thank you for that. Thanks, Ashley. Okay, coming up, um, there's Brian telling us about the gas prices at record highs and sanctions against Russian energy. So... Should we get more oil from Canada? Oh wait, <laughs> we shelved a major pipeline when Biden took office. Was that a huge mistake? Could that pipeline reconstruction resume? And would it even make a difference today? Those questions and answers next. you're like me you want to find the guy to blame for those skyrocketing bills when you fill up your car gas prices are at record high and that makes pretty much everything else expensive too when russia was sanctioned for its attack on ukraine gas immediately spiked but is it putin or is it Biden who's to blame a little background here on pumping gas and pumping oil back in 2015 it was president obama who decided to nix a 2,000-mile expansion plan for the Keystone XL pipeline. And that was an oil pipeline from Canada that would have carried heavy oil across the border from northern Alberta to a transfer point in Nebraska, where it could then flow freely to all those refineries in the Gulf of Mexico. The major argument for scrapping it? Bad for the environment. Cut to 2017, where President Trump reversed course and approved the plan.
1: Today, I'm pleased to announce the official approval of the presidential permit for the Keystone XL pipeline. It's a great day for American jobs and a historic moment for North America and energy independence.
0: So that happened in the Oval Office. And four years later, President Biden moved into that office. And literally on his first day on the job, he unwound that executive order. And he took away the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline. So all that heavy oil, the stuff that you got to squeeze out of the sand in a very dirty process, much of it is still sitting up there in Canada while we are taking out a mortgage to pay for gas down here. So was that a colossal mistake? Should the pipeline have gone ahead? Would it have really even made any difference. Joining me now is chemical engineer Robert Rapier, who has uh, got 25 years of international experience in oil and gas, and he knows a thing or two. He also knows about renewable energy and is a senior contributor for Forbes. Also with us is climate expert Elizabeth Moyer from the University of Chicago, and Richard Masson is the chair of the World Petroleum Council and an energy expert at the University of Calgary where I used to live in Alberta. Welcome to all three of you. Robert, I want to begin with you. It's a really easy question. Was it a mistake to scrap the pipeline? Because here we are, you know, telling Russia, we don't want your oil, but we still need oil.
1: Right. Yes, it was a mistake. It was a strategic and a political mistake. Um, it wouldn't have helped today. Gas prices today wouldn't be any different if, if uh, Biden hadn't canceled the, the uh, permit. This is really about a strategic insurance policy for the next crisis that comes along. Uh, the next time we need oil and we have to rely on Venezuela or Saudi or Russia instead of barrels that could have been coming from Canada. And it wasn't just going to be Canadian oil. It was going to also going to pick up oil from the Bakken in the U.S. So, uh, you know, there were a lot of reasons to build it. And I've always said, you know, build it and then work to ensure that you don't need it. Try to try to get off of oil, but keep that there as strategic insurance policy.
0: So, Elizabeth, that kind of makes sense what Robert said. Uh, maybe we didn't expect uh, Vladimir Putin to do what he did and to cause this global calamity, but. I mean, an insurance policy might have been nice. And, and I totally understand the idea that it would be great to get off of fossil fuel dependence, but
8: we're still not there, right, Elizabeth? No, we aren't, but it's not like... Oil prices are set by the global market, so they will go up regardless of the U.S. supply of oil. And the issue with the Keystone Pipeline is that, you know, when it was envisioned in 2008, we really needed it. We were willing to suffer a lot of potential environmental harm to have oil, which was seen as a strategic national interest because U.S. production was declining. And right now, the U.S. production has gone up so much that the U.S. is a net exporter of oil. We're in a totally different situation. It's a, it's a prehistoric idea, the, the Keystone Pipeline. So so we're, ta- we're arguing over something which is not relevant to modern conditions. So
0: Richard answered that prehistoric idea, this, this pipeline. I know a lot of people in the business who would disagree with that.
1: Yeah, one of the challenges is the Gulf Coast refineries were designed to process heavy oil to a large degree. That's because that's the oil they could get from Mexico called Maya or from Venezuela. And so they need that heavy oil. That's why... Russian oil was coming all the way to those refineries, Russian heavy oil to make up for the lack of supply from Canada. Keystone was part of the answer to that. Uh, you know, I think it's gone. But in the interim, Alberta certainly got lots of heavy oil. And we're going to do our best to get oil to you and ship it probably on rail.
0: So, Robert, jump in here with the idea that, you know, we now know just how uh, bad a player Putin is. I mean, if we didn't already. Right. But now it's on global display and it's um, it's causing what some are saying could be World War Three. Wouldn't we be better to be doing business with Canada than, say, the Russias, the Venezuelas, or the Saudis of the world, even if that oil up there is super-duper dirty and um, really expensive and yucky to actually get out of the, the tar sands.
1: Yeah, and it's a little bit of a, you know, I've heard people say it's the dirtiest oil in the world, and that's not really true. There's a lot of oil that we get today that is dirtier than that oil, and we get it from places that don't clean up oil spills, and we get it from places that don't have good worker protections in place. So it would be far better for us to deal with Canada, which has good environmental protections. They reclaim the land. I mean, I've walked on land up there that's been reclaimed. You can't tell that anything's been done to it. And, um, you know, there's always environmental impacts from producing, transporting, and consuming oil. There, there always is. And the answer to that is use less oil and figure out ways to use less oil. But as long as we're using oil, we want to transport it in the safest possible way, and if the demand is still there when Keystone could have been that the XL could have been built, and if the demand is still there, it is going to come from Russia and it's going to come from uh, Venezuela and it's going to come on rail and it's going to come by super tanker and and there are accidents with with those modes of transportation at a higher rate than pipelines.
0: Yeah, I mean, listen, I I look to the um, the spill rate in the existing part of the Keystone pipeline right the XL is the extra part of the pipeline that hasn't been built yet 2017 massive spill two more in 2011 and 2016 uh, but then you make a great argument that the Exxon Valdez was no uh, small disaster and that was a tanker not a pipeline and that rail tanker in Quebec that killed 47 people when it exploded in a small town that was a that was a rail not not a pipeline so Elizabeth I guess that's a that's an interesting debate that people wage. I get it. Um, nobody wants a pipeline through their wetlands or their grasslands, but um, nobody wants a, a tanker to explode
8: in their town either, right? Yeah, no, I totally agree. And and it is totally true that pipelines are safer than rail. I agree with that. I'm a pragmatist. But the point is that the Canadian oil that would come through the keystone at this point in time is going for export. And the United States is not a colony of Canada. You know, we don't need to assume any environmental risk to help Canadian businessmen. And it's true that our refinery capacity in Texas is set up for heavy oil. Uh, you know, that's completely true. But it's also not the case that people in Nebraska need to have their lands seized by eminent domain to benefit a businessman in Texas. Texas, You know, the TransCanada that wanted to build this pipeline was exercising the powers of eminent domain to seize private property from Americans. A Canadian company was taking American private property for their pipeline. And you can only justify that when there's a national strategic, very compelling national strategic interest. Uh, for the pipeline, and there just isn't anymore. We've, fracking has revolutionized the energy landscape, um, and it's just not something that has the strategic importance it would have had in 2008.
0: Well, I kind of think environmental risk. I, 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 Unexpectedly, I think what's happening, you know, right now in Ukraine has got this conversation potentially back in its nascence again to, to, to see if it's going to happen. I wish we could have more time, but I'm going to have you guys back. Robert Rapier, Richard Mastin and Elizabeth Moore. Thank you. All three of you really appreciate it. Straight ahead. Exactly. Heartbreak on the highway. Six college golfers and their coach are dead after a truck carrying two people veered right into their path. Those two people died as well. But now the big question, what caused their truck to cross the center line and slam head-on into those kids? We're going to take you live to West Texas next. <music> Utter tragedy to report on from Texas tonight. A passenger van loaded with golf team members from the University of the Southwest was hit head-on by a truck that veered right into their lane in rural West Texas. Nine people were killed, including the golf coach. The players were headed home to New Mexico from a two-day golf tournament and were on that rural two-lane road when this tragedy happened. News Nation correspondent Marky Martin is covering this story for us, and she's with me now live. Marky, this is just such an unimaginable tragedy. Do we know yet how or why that vehicle veered into their lane and hit them head-on?
9: We don't. Uh, still a lot of answers that need to be given to the families, the school. But talk about horrific losses uh, for those team members, the families, the University of the Southwest. It was actually head coach uh, Tyler James, who was behind the wheel. He was in his first year, actually, first year of head coaching both the men's and the women's team. However, state officials say it was actually that other car, that pickup truck that you just mentioned. That pickup is the one that veered over into the golf team's lane. And that team was about halfway home when tragedy struck.
1: It's a, it's a very
5: tragic scene. It's very, very tragic.
9: This is the wreckage left behind from the deadly
10: car crash involving a New Mexico golf team. The team's crumpled bus, barely recognizable. The Ford truck it collided with, charred in a ditch alongside the road.
1: This was a head on crash. One of the vehicles belonged to the University of the Southwest. It was transporting the men's and women's golf team from a golf tournament here in the West Texas area. Um, tragically, there are deceased in that vehicle.
10: Seven inside the team bus didn't survive, and we now know who. Head coach Tyler James, freshman Mauricio Sanchez, freshman Travis Garcia, junior Jackson Zinn, junior Carissa Rains, freshman Tiago Sousa, and freshman Lacey Stone whose mother posted a loving tribute on Facebook showing off the matching heart tattoos she and Lacey got before leaving for her first year of college, adding, quote, I wouldn't wish this pain on my worst enemy. The university issuing a statement confirming the accident, seven deaths from the team and two athletes in critical condition at a Lubbock hospital. Police say neither the driver nor passenger from the pickup truck survived. Area schools now grieving alongside the University of the Southwest.
1: You send your, your kid off to college, in this case to play golf, and you just never dream of something like this happening. Most uh, small cottages or in, in small areas, and so the, they affect not only the team, not only the student body, but the town.
10: As the sun came up this morning, troopers still on scene investigating. Officials say, for unknown reasons, it appears the pickup truck crossed the center line and ran into the team van head-on, both vehicles catching fire.
9: Uh, just an agonizing 24 hours for that school. And Ashley. I did call uh, the office of the president first thing this morning. I actually got a hold of his assistant. She said that he would be unavailable all day long as he had gone to that hospital in Lubbock to be with those two students who are still in critical condition. Actually, it's
0: like- so weird because honestly, you think maybe it was late at night. Maybe that truck, someone fell asleep at the wheel, but it was only around eight o'clock at night. So even that doesn't seem you know, too plausible. Marky, what do we know about those two yep. kids who survived the ones in critical condition?
9: Yeah, so we got all of the names of those involved late this afternoon. The two kids, the two players, uh, I should say, who survived are still in the hospital. Both of them are on the male golf team. Their names are Dayton Price and Hayden Underhill. Um, interesting, both of them freshmen, both of them from Ontario, Canada. And I actually found a GoFundMe page for Dayton uh, who His friend's family had already set that up for medical expenses, and they detailed on his GoFundMe page uh, that he had suffered third-degree burns to most of his body. So it does sound like it'll be uh, a long road to recovery, both mentally and physically, uh, if and when these two young men do get out of the hospital, Ashley.
0: What a... What a just awful tragedy. Marky, thank you for covering yeah. that for us. And keep us posted on those other two as well, if you would. Do appreciate it. Marky Martin, live for us in Dallas. When we come back after the break, uh, an American mother has been waiting to hear from her son, like we all do, right? Except she's waiting to hear from him in Ukraine. He was leaving, and she hasn't heard from him for days. An emotional interview. So, uh, you know, as we've been doing a lot of the war coverage, I know as a viewer, things start to look and sound a lot the same, and there's a lot to digest in a lot of these stories. Um, and, and then you hear about someone named Tina Hauser, who is a fellow American from Minnesota, and she's just looking for her son, fellow American who is teaching over in Ukraine. My colleagues, Marnie Hughes and Leland Vittert, are about to air uh, just a gut-wrenching interview, guys, with with Tina. Um it's been a while since she's heard from her son.